Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Miriam Gillis, Professor of Law at the Benjamin Cardoso School of Law. Professor Gillis specializes in class actions, aggregate litigation, and arbitration. She's widely recognized as one of the leading scholars of civil procedure in her generation and has testified before Congress on consumer protection issues. Hey, Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Felipe. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you here. I've, I've long admired your work, so I'm very happy to have you as a guest. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. It's a mutual admiration society. I admire your work as well. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks. So let me start with uh, a very basic question. Uh, a lot of your work focuses on arbitration. So why don't you tell us a bit about what arbitration is and how it's regulated in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, I think we want to focus on, um, if, if we're talking about my work, on a particular strand of arbitration. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to talk about, you know, uh, union arbitration, uh, trade arbitration, international arbitration. Instead, I want to talk about um, arbitration as it affects sort of people like you and me, ordinary people in their ordinary lives. Um, and for us, uh, arbitration is um, sort of a choice of law provision and a form selection provision all rolled into one and inserted into a standard form agreement or contract that none of us ever reads, ever thinks about, ever looks at, uh, but is definitely part of our lives in almost every amenity um, that we uh, that we wish to, to purchase. So what I mean by that is we we enter into agreements, for example, um, you know, to send our kids to camp uh, or when we apply for a job or when we purchase certain products. And within uh, the small print, there's something called an arbitration provision. And what that arbitration provision says is that you and I, the company and the consumer or the company and the employee, agree that all disputes that shall arise between us will be resolved not in court, not before a jury, but in an arbitration. And moreover, the arbitrator, the private judge who will resolve these disputes, um, this private judge can only is only authorized to uh, give relief that is specific to this individual who's bringing the claim. Um, no broad injunctive relief. The individual waives their right to bring not just the claim in court, but also um, to bring any class action, collective action, representative action. Um, and then there are a bunch of other things that you can sort of add on to arbitration clauses. For example, some arbitration clauses say that punitive damages can't be awarded, pain and suffering damages can't be awarded. So there's a lot that can be done with the language. But Essentially, what this is, is private do-it-yourself um, dispute resolution. These are companies deciding how they want disputes against them to be resolved. Um, but I think, at least from my perspective, what this does is it means that there will be very few claims or disputes brought against them um, uh, ever. Because if those claims can't be brought in court, many people will just abandon them altogether. So the, that's the arbitration that I write about. It's the sort of modern day, what we call forced arbitration, because of course, none of us really agrees to this. Um, when we, you know, when we buy a cell phone um, or send a package via FedEx, we don't really think about disputes and how they're going to be resolved. 
uh, and yet we all uh, somehow are bound to these agreements, which have been given great force by the Supreme Court over the past decade. That's great. So let me ask you a question about that. So what is particular about arbitration clauses in these contracts of addition that we all sign that uh, that is particularly traveling or important? Because, you know, it's true that I don't read the arbitration clauses in these uh, multi-page standard form contracts I execute for most services that, that I contract into, but that's also true of other clauses. So why do you think arbitration is special or should be singled out uh, in terms of the attention that it gets? I think uh, it's a great question. And I think for me, um, it really is uh, the the class action banning uh, part of the arbitration clause, because uh, from where I sit, most consumers, employees have been able to vindicate their rights, whether under state or federal law um, via class actions. Most claims um, that any consumer would bring would be uh, what we call a negative value claim. In other words, it would cost more to actually adjudicate the claim than uh, the consumer uh, has at stake. And so the only way to make those claims viable is through a procedural device that allows for aggregation. In the federal system, that's Rule 23. Nearly every state has has a similar rule um, on on its books. And those aggregation rules allow um, lawyers, mainly entrepreneurial lawyers, to aggregate the claims of many, 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 maybe thousands or hundreds, hundreds of thousands or millions of consumers together uh, so as to adjudicate kind of on a, a level playing field with, uh, with a defendant corporation. But once you take that power away, once aggregation is no longer available, well, if I'm an individual consumer and I feel as though AT&T keeps charging me, you know, this illegal fee on every single bill and I can't figure out how to get them to stop and I can't figure out how to get back the money I've already paid them. Uh, if my only option is to go into an individual arbitration, a setting that I know nothing about, um, uh, you know, a, a situation that that seems completely um, sort of time consuming and expensive uh, from my perspective, I'm just not going to do it. Um, And moreover, you know, even if I were really serious about it, I'm not going to get a lawyer to do it because if the arbitration clause tells us that you can't aggregate the claims of all those affected uh, by the allegedly illegal conduct, um, so you're only bringing individual silo, single file claims, that means that any lawyer operating on contingency can only get a third of whatever it is I'm going to recover as a consumer. That's bubkis, right? That's nothing. So I'm not being, going to be able to get a lawyer to do it. I'm not going to do it myself. And so what these clauses end up being, unlike all the other clauses and all, and all the other boilerplate that we have at the end of our, our contracts, what arbitration clauses end up do, being are uh, provisions that suppress claims. They prevent people from actually adjudicating disputes. Uh, and they prevent us as the public from knowing when companies are acting in a wrongful manner. Legislators pass laws. They're supposed to, you know, these laws are supposed to have effect. But one of the ways we enforce whether, you know, w- whether laws have effect is through private litigation. And private litigation is no longer on the table. Um, it's just gone. And I think we can see that because the number of class actions is in a pretty steep decline since uh, in the past decade. Uh, since the Supreme Court has uh, found that these arbitration clauses are enforceable, 
Um, and not only that, some studies have shown that very, 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 very few minuscule number of individuals ever decide to uh, individually arbitrate their claims. So what's happening to everything else, right? Is it just that all these companies are suddenly not, you know, charging us illegal fees or engaging in some other uh, bad act? I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, corporate um, misconduct will always be with us. So what's really happening is the claims are simply being suppressed. I think that there's a lot of empirical work in this space and not all of it's great, but one one good um, study uh, was done by Cindy Esland at NYU. She did a sort of an analysis of uh, looking at all the employment discrimination cases that had been brought before the Supreme Court's sort of arbitration jurisprudence took effect. And then looking at the, the current uh, moment, she estimates that something like 900,000 claims have simply slipped through the cracks. They're no longer brought. People don't bring them anymore. Um, and that just means that lots of employers are getting away with wage theft or other, uh, other illegal activity. And the people who have to you know, pay for that are all the workers and probably many of them low-wage workers uh, who have no choice but to continue to work in places where, um, where their rights are being uh, violated on a day-to-day basis. So I think that ARB clauses are different. Um, in a significant measure from, you know, your choice of law provision or your form selection clause or your force majeure clause, because they really have the ability to just suppress claims to they, these legal claims die on the vine. Um, and, and so that's why I think this is so important. Great. Let me go back to something you mentioned. So you said part of this rise in arbitration in this everyday standard form contracts that we execute has to do with the way in which the Supreme Court has approached arbitration. Why don't you tell us a bit about the legal framework for arbitration and how it has changed under uh, the court's jurisprudence? Sure. So in uh, 2011, so just over a decade ago, um, the Supreme Court decided a case called AT&T versus Concepcion, a 5-4 decision. And I think this case is this sort of... uh, the watershed moment. It reconfigures the law of, cla- of, of uh, class banning arbitration clauses and the landscape of aggregate litigation more generally uh, in this decision. So um, I'll tell you quickly about the facts of the case. Uh, so Vincent and Liza Concepcion, they saw an advertisement for a free AT&T cell phone with the purchase of a two-year service contract. Many of us have been intrigued by those uh, those offerings. Uh, they they take AT&T up on this, but after uh, after doing so, they learn they have to pay $30.22 in sales tax. So they argue that this is actually not a free phone. So they initiate a class action lawsuit, um, arguing that AT&T is, you know, falsely advertised the phone as free. But because they'd already purchased the phones um, and had agreed to the two-year service contract, in that service contract, was an arbitration provision, and AT&T moves to compel arbitration uh, pursuant to that provision. And um, and the lower court says, you know, we it sounds like a great deal to just be able to go into arbitration because it's a pretty small um, issue and problem. Maybe even not not that many people are affected. But I can't um, I can't uh, compel arbitration because in California at the time there was a public policy exception to enforcing uh, class banning arbitration clauses. And California wasn't alone. In 2011, 
uh, 14 other states had rules, um, judicial rules in place that rendered class banning arbitration clauses unenforceable. So when the Supreme Court took this case, um, uh, and my good friend Deepak Gupta argued it, I remember thinking, um, you know, the court, especially with Scalia and Thomas on this court, uh, these, you know, well-known federalists, states' rights people, they're going to say whatever the state's contract law says, right? How, how the state's judiciary interprets contract law in that state, that's what's got to govern here, right? We're not going to let the the Federal Arbitration Act enacted in 1925 uh, bigfoot its way into the state's uh, the, the state's ability to regulate contracts uh, because that that's something that the states ought to be able to do. Um, but that's not how it turned out. It turned out that the court um, in Concepcion decided that states cannot, um, either through legislation or judicial decision, they cannot discriminate against arbitration clauses. That the FAA announced a liberal policy in favor of arbitration and arbitration clauses should be enforced by their terms unless there's some real reason not to enforce it. Uh, so unconscionability or fraud. Um, but those things can't just be sort of, you know, discovered by judges. It has to really be that there was unconscionability. And in this case, uh, the court found that there wasn't. Um, this is an incredibly important decision, but it's not the only one. Two years later, the Supreme Court decides a case called American Express versus Italian Colors. Uh, that case comes up through the federal system, through the Second Circuit. Um, their group of small merchants uh, waged a, brought a antitrust claim against American Express, uh, arguing that it forced them to take all of the company's credit cards, you know, from blue to platinum, um, and charged uh uh, anti-competitive rates for doing so. The merchants were able to prove that um, the only way that they could vindicate their rights under the Sherman Act was to bring this case collectively, because any individual merchant only had maybe $7,000 in damages, even and that's troubled, right? Not <laughs> that, That's after the troubling. And so, of course, if you have to hire an expert and actually prove an antitrust violation, it costs a lot more than $7,000. So they argued that the, the inability to bring a class action um, actually uh, undermined their ability to vindicate their rights under the Sherman Act. And in a head-to-head -head competition between the Sherman Act and the Federal Arbitration Act, we again figured that, um, you know, the, the Sherman Act would prevail. Um, it's, you know, it's it's been around longer. Courts love it when it's been around a long time. Uh, and it's an important uh, tool of, of economic policy in this country. But the justices, again, another 5-4 decision um, held that the uh, arbitration clause in the small merchant contracts was fully enforceable, despite the fact that uh, clearly understanding that without the ability to bring this antitrust claim as a class action, the merchants would not be able to bring this claim at all. They would not be able to afford to bring this claim at all. And so they would just have to lump it. Um, and, and, and on and on and on. I think the court has decided uh, 18 cases um, interpreting the Federal Arbitration Act to, by my count in only one case if they found um, that the arbitration clause wasn't enforceable, which means that in almost every instance, the court has held uh, arbitration clauses of this sort 
enforceable. Uh, and that body of law has grown and calcified and, of course, has trickled down to the lower federal courts um, in, uh, in a pretty significant way. Um, so these days, I think it's actually even hard to find. I mean, the lawyers I talk to tell me that they don't even like to bring cases where there's an arbitration clause. So there's not even that many people challenging these clauses anymore because the law has created such a wall um, uh, and it's so hard to uh, uh, to scale that wall. Um, so the arguments these days go elsewhere, right? People are arguing for legislation or for other means. Um, some people are doing, you know, mass arbitration uh, to try to make companies um, put their money where their mouth is. But I think that... Uh, at least now, most litigators feel, uh, most litigators on the consumer space and the employment space feel like challenging arbitration clauses, frontally challenging arbitration clauses, is a loser's bet. So my intuition would have been in these cases that uh, the court's commitment to states' rights in, in, uh, in AT&T v. Concepcion and then the court's view of the Sherman Act as, you know, the grand super statute, almost constitutional level-like statute, right, uh, that has been around for a long time, that plays such a, such a huge role, as you said, in economic regulation, would have trumped the arbitration clauses. But as you said, surprisingly, the decisions were always in favor of these federal arbitration, pro-arbitration policy. So what do you think drives this jurisprudence? What what was driving these uh, decisions uh, so strongly in favor of arbitration, even against other very deep-seated commitments in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in uh, states' rights issues and then in uh, antitrust law? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and obviously, we can only just, you know... Um, read the tea leaves and try to discern what could be going on in their minds. But my take is, um, you know, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a realist or we all are, but, but, but I'm a realist and probably quite a pessimist. I think that, um, I think that for the conservatives on the court, it turns out that there's no easier way to get rid of litigation and litigants that you don't think ought to have um, their, their day in court than enforcing an arbitration clause. This is just the fastest way of ridding the courts of cases that you believe are frivolous or shouldn't be brought at all. Um, and I think that I think this is an anti-litigation, anti-lawyer, anti-plaintiff's lawyer move. Um, and I think it's hard to for me to see any other justification, but I'll, I'll give you others that people tell me. Um, you know, so Judith Resnick has written that uh, she's a professor at Yale Law School. She's written uh, a lot on forced arbitration. And she thinks that if you look back at uh, the history of sort of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, some of these, the ADEA, some of these uh, statutes that give, that, that, that uh, bequeath upon certain populations, certain, certain groups, rights that they didn't have before, that these were, have always been controversial. They were legislatively controversial and you look at the jurisprudence under these statutes, you know, there's controversy there. Courts, there are some courts in particular, some conservative courts that have done their very best to restrict those, uh, those, um, those statutes and the remedies available under those statutes. So she argues, you know, that arbitration is really just another, um, another 
tributary in that long stream of uh, of cases, trying to find ways to limit the availability of certain rights and certain remedies um, as to litigants that she thinks uh, some judges don't believe ought to have the rights that they have. Um, uh, because otherwise, you know, I think you're, as she puts it, you're sort of chipping away at a piece of granite, whereas with arbitration, you can basically throw the whole thing into the ocean. And I, I think that that's, I, I, I concur with that. I think that's, that's one explanation. Um, I don't really know, you know, other people think that there's uh, something about um, uh, something specific here that's going on here about freedom of contract. Um, and, and when I've debated people uh, from the Chamber of Commerce or from um, Mayor Brown, which is basically the Chamber of Commerce's outside counsel, uh, they often bring up the freedom of contract argument. I kind of got to say, I don't get it. I mean, we all know that standard form contracts are not contracts in the real sense of the word. Um, none of us really pays attention. And when you're agreeing to something that appears, you know, in a dialogue box, um, you know, that, that stands between you and the, the newest version of iTunes, um, you know, that's not real agreement. And so I, I feel like the freedom of contract argument uh, doesn't land for me, but I, I think it probably lands for some people. Um, I think Stephen Ware at the University of Kansas thinks that the freedom of contract argument is the best argument for enforcing these provisions. He thinks that if people sign these contracts, they ought to be held uh, to the bargain that they've made. Um, and that the, you know, the argument that, you know, they really didn't read it or they didn't understand what they were reading is, you know, ignorance is not, is no defense. Um, now, when I've asked him, uh, this is Professor Ware, what do you say to somebody who um, applies for a job? and fills out a job application, right? Which, you know, everyone has done in their lives. And it's a standard form job application. And on the back of it, there's an arbitration clause that says, if we hire you, you are bound to an arbitration clause. Does that seem like the kind of contract we ought to say is enforceable on freedom of contract grounds? I think he kind of stutters at that point, right? That seems like not the not what we think of when we think of uh, freedom of contract. But it's hard to know. I think it's um, I think it's a difficult issue uh, figuring out why the court has uh, started down this path. Um, but now that it's gone down this path, and even with um, with the death of Scalia, you know, now we see Neil Gorsuch taking the lead on this. Um, Clarence Thomas right behind him. Uh, obviously, Sam Alito has been a supporter of this movement um, back even when he was on the Third Circuit. It's hard to not view this as pure politics. Right. This is just the policy making of, of the conservatives is they would prefer uh, that people not be able to sue businesses for large sums of money. It just doesn't seem right to them. OK, so I'm going to pursue this uh, depressing line of <laughs> of uh, questioning and ask you to tell us a bit more about some of the problems that this generates. So it seems really bad, but it, but but beyond that, I think we can disaggregate these into different things and actually things you've written about. So one thing you've written about is the way in which the this radical rise of arbitration in consumer and employment contracts has had an impact on doctrinal development and might affect the development of law. So why don't you tell us a bit about that idea? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, 
I think it's a kind of a natural, I won't even, it's not original, in other words, this idea that if you start to channel all cases that would otherwise be in public courts into a private arbitral system, that what happens, whatever happens to those cases, you just never know how they're resolved. I mean, if they're, you don't even know if they're brought, but much less how they're resolved. We don't get from arbitrators uh, written decisions. Uh, the proceedings in arbitration are not recorded. There's no court reporter. Um, there's no disclosure requirement. Uh, a handful of states require um, arbitration uh, providers like the American Arbitration Society uh, Association and JAMS to give them some empirical information about the number of arbitrations that they're doing every year, et cetera. But there's no there's no nothing that looks like Westlaw, nothing that looks like Lexis. Uh, we don't we don't we don't have access to anything that's going on into our, in arbitration. So once you once once you see that right, all of that confidentiality shrouding litigation, uh, shrouding adjudication, you have to wonder um, what what happens um, to what's left over, right? I mean, if we if we were right now to never again have a, um, a claim alleging gender discrimination under Title VII, um, never again would such a claim be adjudicated in the courts of the United States because all such claims would be bound up by arbitration clauses because the easiest thing to do is to impose an arbitration clause on an employee. And so we never hear another Title VII case again. Well, what's going to happen to the law of Title VII? It's going to stay wherever it is in the moment that the last case to leave this, the public system is decided. Um, so any other issues that might come up in the future? So for example, is it a violation of Title VII to treat transgendered people differently? Is it a violation of Title VII not to have uh, nursing uh, areas in your, in your business? Is it a, a violation of Title VII to require um, uh, to require your workers to uh, to tell you what their gender is, and if they're not, if they don't feel gendered, uh, to to give you some indication of how they'd like to be uh, to be addressed, or any of those things within the purview of Title VII, those are issues that we'll never know about. If they are adjudicated, if somebody feels their rights have been violated under the statute, they're going to be bound to go to arbitration. Now, whether they do it or not. It actually doesn't matter from the perspective of law, from our perspective, right? As law professors who want to know what's happening in the legal system, because we want to teach our students how to manage these sorts of arguments, how to win these sorts of arguments. Um, so I, I've been very worried about the sort of um, uh, the inability of the law to move forward, right? Law needs inputs to grow and expand. Um, and if it doesn't get those inputs, I mean, and we don't know what this looks like. We don't, we've never really seen anything like this happen before. This is a, a peculiar moment in, in the American uh, American legal system. But what happens to law when, when there is no input? I think it dies. Um, you know, and, and that's, that, that's a sort of separate argument from the legitimacy argument, right? So that's an, I've made an argument um, that doctrine just sort of, you know, dies on the vine. But others have made a different but related argument that the more people see um, big businesses continue to litigate uh, against each other in public courts, um, criminal cases still happen in public courts, but their cases, their small cases are shunted into arbitration, the less respect and legitimacy the public courts uh, 
are given. I think that's a different argument, but it's related, right? Because the idea is that public legal system, our tax subsidized approach to you know, adjudication of disputes is something that everybody has to buy into for it to feel legitimate and not rigged and real and fair. Um, and so, you know, if people feel like they don't even have access to that system anymore, they might start to feel like nothing that comes out of uh, courtrooms is really valid. And that's certainly not helped by the greater politicization of, of, of uh, judging more generally, the way we think about judges uh, more generally in this in this uh, partisan era. So, so I think these are all related concerns, um, but they go to something deeper than just the harm to individuals who can't bring their claims in court or groups of people that can't bring their claims in court. It goes to kind of the, the heart of um, what it means to have a system of precedent, a system of public law that is accessible, at least theoretically accessible, uh, that people can understand um, and can believe in. Um, yeah, that's very, very illuminating. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the other side of this coin is that all of these individuals are not getting their rights vindicated in court, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a large swath of legally defined and legally established rights that actually don't get judicial protection. Yeah. Um, which, of course, if you're a realist like you are, leads you to ask, do these rights even exist? Because they're yeah. not getting any institutional Mm -hmm. uh, recognition. So do you, uh, uh, I take it that you worry too about that aspect, that individuals' rights are not being actually vindicated if they end up not getting their day in court. Well, that's the main thing, right? I mean, I think every advocate on this side of the issue, and I, I'm clearly an advocate on this side of the issue, I've written briefs, I've testified, so mine goes beyond scholarship, um, a scholarly interest. I, I, I got interested in this because I was worried about people not being able to actually uh, be heard, right? Whether or not you win, just being able to be heard um, strikes me as kind of fundamental to justice. So no, I think that it's true where we see lots and lots of people who just aren't having their rights vindicated. When I testified um, last before the House of Representatives on the FAIR Act, which just passed yesterday, uh, just passed the House yesterday, so knock on wood, it will be, it, it will pass Senate as well. Not the Fair Act, I'm sorry, the arbitration, the, uh, the sexual harassment bill uh, passed the House yesterday. But last I, I testified before the House, um, I met a number of uh, survivors of sexual assault in the workplace who were also testifying. And the only reason that they were able to tell their stories about what had happened to them uh, is because the House, um, the House served them with subpoenas forcing them to speak, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to tell us anything about what happened in their arbitrations uh, because of the confidentiality that, uh, that governs an arbitration. But what was really striking was how many of them, um, these are all workplace uh, incidents, uh, issues of, of uh, sexual assault or discrimination in the workplace, they were telling us about how so many other men and women in the workplaces um, uh, that they inhabited um, had also experienced similar issues, but didn't have the resources, or maybe it's the courage, um, uh, the time, the wherewithal to bring arbitrations. And so they were just dealing with it, right? And, and, and kind of living with this um, 
understanding that they were they were being treated badly, right? That they weren't that, that there were things that were not fair about their workplaces or things that were actually deeply deeply problematic about their workplaces, but there was nowhere to go, nothing to do. Um, you know, one answer obviously would be, well, they could just quit their jobs and get another job. You're right. You don't have to keep working at the place you work if you feel like you're not being treated well. Um, but the truth is today, every single um, employer uh, worth their salt imposes an arbitration clause on, on employees. And again, some of them do it at the moment that you, you uh, fill out the job application, right? So they do it even before you're technically an employee, um, it, which makes it impossible to look around the marketplace or the, the, you know, the, the landscape of jobs and try to find uh, an employer that doesn't have an arbitration clause. It's usually not something that people think about when they're trying to find a job, uh, but it turns out it maybe could be a good thing to think about because if you have an arbitration clause, you're just simply not going to be able to, uh, to challenge practices that you think are harmful to you. I mean, at some level, you have to worry that the impact of this trajectory is just reinforcing broader social phenomena uh, related to the increasing income inequality in the U.S., and uh, socioeconomic stratification uh, in the U.S. And, and so related to that, you have written about the, the place of low-income litigants in civil dockets and mm -hmm. how that relates to questions about access to justice. So how would you characterize your work on, on this related issue? Yeah, I mean, you know, talk of inequality is 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 very much in the air everywhere these days, right? Because we see a kind of a yawning gap between the rich and the poor, and we're constantly trying to figure out how to um, how to sort of build some bridge between the two. The argument I make is, uh, and I, I've written a couple of pieces about the impact of uh, forced arbitration clauses on low income workers and consumers. Um, my argument is really pretty simple. I think that. Many studies have shown that there is no such thing as the American dream anymore. Um, poverty in this country is very sticky. Uh, intergenerational mobility is increasingly low. And what those, what that means, uh, you know, in sort of regular people talk, is if you're born into poverty, you're likely going to stay in poverty, and not only that, your children and their children are likely to stay within that same income uh, uh, in that cohort. And that's terribly depressing just as a matter of macroeconomics, but it's really depressing when we think about the inability to bring class actions, because the one thing we haven't spoken about is that class actions not only get damages for consumers, I think they're, they're, the better thing they do, the thing they do better than that, um, is that they can enjoin future misconduct. Some of the most important class actions in this country's history um, weren't about getting money into the hands of people who had suffered small value injuries, but instead were all about making sure that uh, that an employer or a government actor or some other entity was barred from continuing to engage in certain actions that were deemed harmful. And that's very, very important. It's really important generally, but it's super important if you're poor. Because if you're poor, you're much more likely to interface with lots of entities that are going to exploit you, whether it's payday lenders or unscrupulous landlords or subprime auto lending, you name it, and poor people are going to bump into it. And 
the only way to ensure that the only clear way to ensure that this stuff doesn't keep happening and happen not only in my lifetime again, but also in the lifetime of my children or my children's children is private litigation. Um, consent decrees, orders banning companies from engaging in certain actions, whether it's banning a payday lender from charging usury rates uh, or, or requiring a, a housing facility to provide the basic amenities like hot water and heat. Those are things that happen because of collective litigation. If we can no longer bring collective litigation, um, I think the poor people in this country, low-income workers, um, low-income consumers, the ones who are going to suffer the most, uh, they have far less cushion between... uh, uh, them and 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 the hardships that they will suffer uh, than than those with more money, and I I think that um, I think that's something that we ought to be thinking about because it's not a, it's not a fix to all the problems of inequality, but it would certainly help at least with some specific instances of um, uh, of abuse and exploitation. Um, so I, I think that's I think that's important. Other authors, and here I should um, I, I should do a shout out to Lena Khan, our our, our FTC chair. She um, she and Deepak Gupta Gupta wrote a piece on the regressive nature of class action bans. This is a slightly different argument than mine, but it's related. They argue um, that class action bans are really just um, for people having to spend more. Uh, and be burdened more by misconduct. Because the truth is, if I feel like AT&T is charging me too much um, or imposing some illegal uh, fee, I'm just going to call AT&T and I'm going to get through to AT&T customer service and they're going to they're gonna give me everything I want, right? They're, they're going to make me whole. Um, but that's not true for most low-income consumers. They 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 are uh, much. They live on the margins in ways that make them uh, less effective in all of these alternative means. But in, in, in other words, means that don't require litigation. They they just can't get through um, to get their voices heard, and that's true for them in the political sphere, and it's also just true for them uh, in the marketplace. So so Lena Khan and and, and uh, Deepak Gupta have argued that the regressive nature of enforcing these provisions is pretty clear when you look at the kinds of things that um, are no longer litigable in court, like wage theft, but also when you look at how the the disparate impact of forced arbitration on different groups. Um, so I think that that's an, also an important part of all this. Great. So to end this episode on a, on a more um, <laughs> optimistic <laughs> note... <laughs> Let's try. Um, let's see what you got. Yeah, let's try. So, so, what would you say are some ways forward? Some ways in which we could change this situation. I mean, short of revolution and dismantling <laughs> American capitalism. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, I don't think we should look to the courts uh, because, unless you know, unless you, we have a wholesale um, uh, change in the personnel of the Supreme Court, I think they're going to stick with. Uh, with the arbitration jurisprudence, the conservatives are in the majority and they, they're going to stick with what they've already decided um, and the lower courts don't have power. So I think the clear thing um, is legislation. So the question is federal legislation, the FAIR Act, the Forced Arbitration 
uh, act that would would actually um, amend the FAA to say that uh, arbitration clauses imposed in standard form contracts are not enforceable, essentially reversing the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. That's been um, uh, that bill has been active in every Congress since 2007, and it doesn't pass. Um, sometimes there's a hearing on it, but it doesn't pass. So I, I don't know um, whether, and it, and it didn't even really get much play this, this time around uh, in the first two years of Biden. So I, I'm, not, I'm not incredibly optimistic about federal legislation that just goes back to the status quo. What is happening instead is there's some interest uh, in Congress for a- enacting pieces of legislation that are specific to particular categories or claimants. So I said to you earlier, um, the uh, the the bill that would ban arbitration of sexual assault and sexual discrimination in the workplace, um, that bill passed the House and it might pass the Senate. So that's a pretty narrow bill, right? Um, it, it, uh, it only applies to certain kinds of claims and certain kinds of claimants. There was a bill, uh, I think there will also see a bill passed that protects, uh, service members, people in the military from, uh, arbitration clauses. People in the military have suffered tremendously from arbitration clauses being used against them, um, particularly when they're deployed. Department of Defense has come out strongly in favor of this bill. So I think something like that will pass, right? Very sort of Swiss cheese approach to um, to ridding the country of arbitration clauses. Um, um, so I think we'll see some uh, we'll see some approaches like that at the federal level. Neither of us knows, and we talked before the podcast, we don't want to predict what could happen in the next election. So who knows what uh, what what Congress will look like. But I'm not optimistic, right, that, that the FAIR Act will pass. The other thing to think about is, uh, is rulemaking. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, had actually um, promulgated a rule that would, uh, would have banned forced arbitration clauses in all consumer financial contracts. Um, but once Trump was elected, um, Congress used the Congressional Review Act to repeal that rule. Uh, the CFPB has not gone back to square one to try to start up a new rule, um, but maybe they will do that. And other other uh, agencies have indicated some interest. Department of Ed is, uh, has indicated some interest in uh, banning forced arbitration in student loan agreements. Um, the um, the uh, Medicare Medicaid uh, division of the Health and Human Services has also uh had some interest in promulgating a rule that would bar um, forced arbitration clauses in certain um, contracts with consume with uh, physicians. So we might see some rulemaking on the administrative side, and we might also see some states try to do something creative. It's very hard for the states, though, because the law we talked about earlier, the preemption doctrines that are at the core of the Supreme Court's arbitration jurisprudence. Um, those are hard for the states to overcome because if the FAA is really this powerful, it's going to be very difficult for the states to enact a statute that um, that isn't obviously preempted, uh, an effective statute that isn't obviously preempted. So that I think that's 
that's a harder uh, that's a harder row uh, to hoe. But but possibly we might see some states do some stuff too. Your your state has been probably the most active uh, in this regard. Um, California has tried to do some interesting things to get around arbitration, um, and and so maybe it'll continue to try to do some of those things. Great. Uh, Miriam, I wanted to thank you again for coming to the podcast. I think uh, it's so important that your work shines a light on these uh, problems in uh, the American legal system and questions of access to justice and forced arbitration. So thank you so much for this really illuminating conversation. Thanks for having me, Felipe.